Rights.org and uh, continue uh, supporting their Debs and all those folks. Great work. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Deb, for being on Coast Range Radio. We'll talk to you soon. You're welcome. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, everybody. That's all we have for today. And uh, thanks for joining us on another great conversation with Coast Range Radio, a radio show and podcast that holds conversations with inspiring individuals who are dedicated to creating a better world. Coast Range Radio is on all podcasting services. You can check us out online and subscribe to get the newest episode each month. Um, and uh, tune into your local community radio station. We, we are aired across uh, Western Oregon on uh, community stations. And uh, please support those those great community resources. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. of the entire KBU community, we'd like to offer our sincerest thanks for your contribution to KBU's end-of-year membership drive. We challenged KBU supporters to help us meet three donation matches and raise $45,000, and you stepped up. Your generous support, combined with hundreds of other community radio donors, helped to raise $85,000 for KBU. We knew you could do it, and together, we did. Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender justice, and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, we'll examine the first year of Joe Biden's presidency with Brooke Adams, Movement Politics Director at People's Action. Adams will also share her organization's strategy for moving the needle on progressive change over the next year. Then Carmen Comsty of the California Nurses Association joins me to discuss AB 1400, the single-payer bill in California that just passed a major legislative hurdle and goes to the assembly floor for a vote in days. Finally, John Nichols of The Nation will discuss his newest book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. That's coming up in just a moment.
This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. One year into Joe Biden's presidency, Democrats, who have a razor-thin control of the Senate and House, haven't had as much success in passing visionary progressive legislation as many voters thought. With the ambitious Build Back Better bill stalled, and two corporate Democrats, Christian Sinema and Joe Manchin, stymieing filibuster reform, we turn today to Brooke Adams, Director of Movement Politics at People's Action, to understand the reasoning behind the status quo and how we might change it. Welcome to the program, Brooke. Thank you so much, Sonali. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, how do you assess Biden's presidency, understanding that he is limited by what Congress can do. Most Americans, when polled, might say, you know, that he has utterly failed because, of course, they're only seeing the achievements. But you are, you know, among those folks who monitors how the sausage is made, if you will. Understanding all of that, how do you assess President Biden's leadership this past year? Thank you for the question. So I would I would say, first off, there have been big victories since Biden has taken office. But at the same time, he has not done everything he can as our president to advance a progressive agenda that will benefit working people all across this country. So let me maybe start with the good, because, you know, I think sometimes we get so muddled in all of the challenges that we're facing at the federal level that we lose sight of some of the victories that were won in recent months that in many ways have been some of the most landmark pieces of legislation for working people in recent history. Um, so the American Rescue Plan, right? This is something that was all over the news recently, um, but the debate has shifted recently to build back better. The American Rescue Plan was perhaps the most significant piece of legislation to benefit working people in this country in decades. Um, and it may lead to the lowest child poverty rate on record, right? It included a big boost to many direct payments to people. And though some of those payments could have been bigger, the impacts of that are still extremely significant. It cut child poverty in half. It included housing assistance for millions of Americans. Um, it really boosted employment and included funding for schools, vaccines, relief for small businesses, et cetera. A few of the other things that have happened since Biden took office, uh, the number of Americans with health coverage in this country is at the highest level ever. And Bi President Biden took good steps on key issues such as ending surprise billing um, that have impacted millions of Americans' experience with the healthcare system here. On climate, again, much more that needs to be done, but we've rejoined the Paris Agreement, um, which is an exciting victory for us that moves us in the direction this country needs to go in. So you mentioned, Sonali, right, that President Biden only has a certain amount of power given the fact that Democrats only hold a razor slim margin in Congress, or sorry, in the Senate. But I do wanna lift up that there are a number of executive actions that he could have taken and could still take um, that he has not done, right? He could eliminate student debt for 42 million borrowers in this, borrowers in this country with the stroke of a pen. He could increase federal action on climate and actually bring us to hitting the Paris goals through executive action. And he could seize drug patents developed with public money to make sure people can actually afford life-saving medications during a pandemic. So in summary, I would say, yes, there have been big victories since President Biden has taken office, 
But the Build Back Better agenda is tangled up in the Senate right now. And the best thing that President Biden could do is use the power that he has to actually move some of these executive actions to protect everyday people. And I do want to lift up too that, you know, Build Back Better is, is stalled in the Senate because of the two corporate Democrats that you mentioned, but also because corporations have funneled millions and millions of dollars into lobbying to block this agenda. And so oftentimes, right, we spend a lot of time uh, focusing in on evaluating senators and the president. Uh, but in reality, what's behind the curtain is a massive corporate attack on a progressive agenda that actually is, in fact, quite popular. And I want to talk about that uh, briefly, uh, but I just also want to add, you know, on an individual level, uh, I'd like to throw out, is there a mandate between now and November, given this thin, thin political power that Biden has and the Democrats have, is there a mandate to take bold visionary changes or should they play it safe? This is the question that we see debated over and over again, every single cycle in the national news. And, and by, by saying, should they play it safe? I was playing devil's advocate and right, kind of yes. channeling the Washington Post op-ed pages, for example. Right, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and who's writing those op-eds, right? It's oftentimes groups like the Chamber of Commerce that are backed by big businesses who have a direct stake in blocking the passage of policies that are actually quite popular with the American people. So. To answer your question in short, yes, there is a mandate for Democrats to campaign in a way that actually appeals to the changes that people all across this country desperately need. And let's be honest, people are exhausted. It has been a tough couple of years with the pandemic and with just the fluctuation in our political and economic uh, realities right now. And what people need is not to be told that once again, we're going to play it safe and actually refrain from making any meaningful change in this country. People need a vision because in moments when when we are tired, right, when this country has gone through what in many ways is a collective trauma over the past couple of years, the only thing that will really move us out of that and inspire people to really see that politics can and does matter in their lives is bold campaigning. And I do want to lift up, you know, oftentimes the reason that that politicians are told to play it safe is again because corporations and the wealthy have a direct stake in them campaigning on a middle of the road agenda. But when you actually break down the facts about what's popular in this country, many of the elements of Build Back Better and many of the elements of what progressive organizations all across this country are fighting for are indeed quite popular with the American electorate. More than two thirds of people support raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. More than 80% of adults think that prescription drugs are unreasonably expensive. Uh, most people in this country support building enough new nonprofit and publicly owned homes to ensure everyone in the US has a place to live. Two thirds of adults say that the federal government is doing too little on climate change, right? The statistics go on and on and on. In reality, people are actually hungry for the sort of visionary change um, that oftentimes, again, groups like the Chamber of Commerce are telling Democrats to avoid and move closer to the center because they're afraid of losing their profits. So let's talk about the way in which People's Action has managed to kind of break through the logjam at the granular level, at the grassroots level. Um, unfortunately, people get bombarded by the 
centrist propaganda in their newspapers and their television screens. But uh, your organization has been using this method that you call deep canvassing to not just find out where people are, but to actually push the needle on uh, political uh, desires on and, and on trying to you know, understand where people are and push them to, 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 to have that progressive change that they want. Tell me about deep canvassing. Yeah, that's exactly right, Sonali. People's Action's Deep Canvas program is built to cut through the noise of the propaganda that people are hearing on Fox News, right? Blasted on their TVs every single day because again, the reality is the majority of Americans need better healthcare. Agree that climate change is a major threat that we are facing in this country, right? Want better, safe, livable homes. And the reason that they aren't with us or perhaps haven't made up their minds in elections is not because they don't want these improvements in their lives. It's because they are so blasted with fear-driven messaging, oftentimes racist fear-driven messaging from the right, um, that creates mass confusion, mass disinformation, and ultimately pushes people to vote against their own interests. And so with our deep canvas program, what we are aiming to do is build deep, meaningful connections with voters on the doors and on the phones, right? In every single conversation we have that can cut through some of that noise and actually build a relationship that's rooted in empathy, in listening, um, that can bring people in to seeing this big picture vision of how all of us can thrive and benefit once we have a government and an economy that cares for all of us. So instead of giving our canvassers poll tested, DC you know, created messaging that they just go regurgitate on the doors, we actually train people in softer skills, like how to listen, how to ask questions, how to engage with curiosity, and ultimately how to build a one-to-one -one relationship with people on the doors um, so that voters are able to see that what differentiates us is actually not so great and what brings us together under wanting and needing this shared agenda is much stronger and can last for the long haul because ultimately we know end of the day that no matter what we do there are going to be fear-driven messages on immigration right telling voters that they have to pick either the climate or their jobs and we can't have both and the only way we get in front of that is by actually building lasting relationships with people so when all of that fear-driven messaging comes people remember the hope and the connection that they had with the the folks who talked to them on the doors and on the phones and that compels us all to actually build together the government and the economy that we need Brooke, you co-wrote an op-ed in USA Today with representatives Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar last fall, where you point out that there is support among Americans for, say, Medicare for All. Uh, we've just had a conversation today with the California Nurses Association expert about CalCare, um, which is a single-payer bill in California. But of course, at the federal level, we have a bill as well. And we're always, you know, there, there's the naysayers against single pair gets so much um, space in the op-ed pages. But tell me what your what you and Talib and Omar um, find and share in your op-ed about healthcare single pair for all. I mean, the findings are simple. It's that the majority of Americans actually want and need Medicare for all. And I will I will say first, I actually think it is extremely popular. And when people do not support it, it is oftentimes just because of the fear-driven messaging, again, around the buzzword, and not because of what the policy would mean in people's lives. 
right? We have been experiencing a global pandemic for over two years now. I think most Americans understand at this point that healthcare is something that needs to be a human right that all of us have fair access to in order for people to have the basic necessities they need to survive here in this country. Um, and Americans identify time and time again, healthcare as a top priority in elections, right? Um, and so when we see middle of the road corporate Democrats avoiding Medicare for all and avoiding taking strong stances, I guarantee you the vast majority of them are receiving money from private insurers um, and potentially even hospitals, right, within their localities. And this is what drives them to actually avoid campaigning and being champions on issues like Medicare for all, right? What's when really, for, oh, yes, go ahead. What's really interesting, Brooke, uh, is that you don't hear the critics of Medicare for all complaining about the fact that the government has picked up the cost of COVID-19 testing, vaccines, you know, distribution, um, the cost of even treatment, most COVID-19 treatment, if you are stricken with a virus and you're uninsured, the government will generally pay for most of your treatment. There's this COVID-19 exception that has gone under the radar over the past two years where we have assumed it is a given for the government to use public funds to pay for our care, but only if you catch the virus. If you have cancer and are uninsured, you're out of luck. And it's really interesting that we haven't heard the private insurers or you haven't heard, you know, the Heritage Foundation or these other corporate profiteers who want to preserve the private health insurance system complain about this because it would be really horrifying to hear them complain about people's care being covered. There is a COVID-19 exception. Yeah, it is It is a very interesting fact, Sonali. And I, I think in part speaks to some of the work that was done through the American Rescue Fa Plan to normalize the expectation that COVID actually be something that the government is putting federal money into. At the same time, I, I would just say that Americans are horrified enough by this pandemic that if corporations, if, if private insurers started coming after this policy, it would just be so revealing of their interests as opposed to the interests of the health and well-being of the American people um, that I, I don't think they could come back from it. But it's interesting also that um, there hasn't been enough connection made between, well, if the government's going to cover COVID-19 care, why aren't we covering other care? You know, why Absolutely. aren't we covering cancer care, diabetes care, et cetera, et cetera? Um, well, so th then let's talk about um, what it's going to take to push things forward with just going back to the issue of deep canvassing. Uh, in fact, uh, I had spoken to someone else at People's Action before the November 2020 election about how deep canvassing was shown to, uh, you know, increase turnout for Biden. Your organization actually did a lot of canvassing work around the country and helped move the needle, you know, even in the tiniest way to ensure that Trump wouldn't have a second term. But here we are stymied once more with these, you know, with, with the midterm elections coming up in 2022. How can deep canvassing ensure that Biden not only retains his Democratic majority, but that the House and Senate control is large enough that we can have build back better. Um, the House could go to Republicans. The Senate could go to Republicans. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And look, I think looking ahead towards 2022, there's, there's a lot to be worried about. And I do think that our deep canvas program 
is one of the areas in which, at least for me, there is a lot of hope about what is possible in this country too. So the, the major things I would say, our deep canvas is actually meant to appeal to people who are conflicted. And I do think the progressive movement has made huge strides over the past decade to elect champions to federal office. But when you look at where those victories have happened, the vast majority of them have been in safely blue areas. And so there's a lot of work that we need to do to actually build our base, right? And preach beyond the choir and reach, reach conflicted voters, especially working class conflicted voters who have a direct stake in the sort of policies that we are campaigning on, uh, but perhaps aren't already voting with us or have not made up their mind yet. And our deep canvas program in 2022 is actually focused on building infrastructure in Republican held turf that frankly, the Democratic Party has not been building the infrastructure it needs to win in for decades. Because these are the areas where there's vast communities of people who again, really need the things that we're campaigning on um, but are conflicted. And come November, their votes are gonna be critical for determining the makeup of the House and the Senate. And so, you know, People's Action deep canvases everywhere, but in 2022, we are really focused in on building infrastructure in some of these Republican held areas, particularly in rural areas and in small towns and cities, um, where we know that people, you know, care about healthcare, care about housing, are directly impacted by these issues, and ultimately could build relationships with our canvassers that would bring them into being a part of fighting for the agenda that we need to win post-2022. Brooke, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Give out a website for People's Action and where people can find out about uh, the deep canvassing project. Yes, you can go to peoplesaction.org. That's peoplesaction.org. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Brooke Adams, Director of Movement Politics at People's Action. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. A major bill in California to guarantee health care for all recently cleared a legislative hurdle after passing out of a state health committee. AB 1400, introduced by Assemblymember Ash Kalra, sets in motion a single-payer health care system called CalCare, in the nation's most populous state. An accompanying amendment, ACA 11, outlines how the bill would be funded. 
Already, opponents of a guaranteed healthcare system are sharpening their attacks by questioning the cost and complexity of such a publicly funded healthcare system. This in spite of its popularity among Californians. Uh, we turn now to Carmen Comsty, lead regulatory policy specialist in government relations at the California Nurses Association. She's also a commissioner on the Healthy California for All Commission. Welcome to the program, Carmen. Thanks, Anali. Thanks for having me. So first, let's talk about what AB 1400 would do. Um, it's you know, it, uh, passed this health committee, and that was considered a big success. It shouldn't have been this hard, considering California has a supermajority of Democrats. We have a governor who campaigned on single-payer health care. One would think that uh, single-payer health care would have been passed ages ago in California. It hasn't yet. So is AB 1400 the single-payer system that you and I and others have dreamed of in California? Yes, you know, California Nurses Association who has sponsored AB 1400, we've been working on single payer for decades. And this bill, it would guarantee universal healthcare coverage to all Californians as of right. And, you know, regardless of, of your uh, immigration status, regardless of your uh, ability to pay, regardless of your medical health conditions. And it is the single payer system that, you know, we, we've been pushing for. And I think what is different this time is that, you know, we've, uh, we, we've put on, a on the table uh, a financing proposal so that the legislature can do its job to figure out how to, um, how to get us to that last part in, in, in the cost. How do we replace, you know, the premiums, the co-pays, the deductibles that are growing every, every year? We've asked the legislature, do its job to figure out how do we replace these private taxes that are placed on, on Californians every year with a publicly financed, progressively taxed healthcare system. And, and you know, I think that's really what what makes it different this time around, why we've been uh, so successful. You know, we passed out of the uh, uh, Assembly Appropriations Committee uh, last week and we're moving on to the floor. Um, sometime, hopefully by January 31st, by the end of the month, um, you know, we'll have a floor vote in the Assembly and, and, and hopefully we'll be moving forward to the Senate. So this bill, if it were to pass and become implemented, would establish CalCare. Um, how would that change the system that we are in right now, which is a patchwork system, right? Many of us, those of us who are lucky enough to be employed at a company that provides health insurance, have private health insurance. Some of us who might be self-employed or unemployed might be getting their insurance through um, the Affordable Care Act Exchange Covered California, as it's called, and of course, there's plenty among us who are simply uninsured because of the cost or maybe we're undocumented. How would, what would CalCare do to the status quo? It, it would fundamentally transform our, our healthcare system. And instead of private insurance companies telling us when we can see a doctor, how much we can pay, you know, having deductibles and having numerous financial barriers, cost sharing, um, co-pays, deductibles, Co-insurance, all these things that prevent us from getting our health care right now, today, those would be gone under under CalCare. Um, CalCare would establish a single network, a single public public program across the state of California, where everybody could have the the uh, any doctor within California um, and and have true freedom of choice of healthcare provider, 
um, un under the system. The, the only thing that would be changing is how we are paying for our health health insurance health care coverage instead of having multiple fragmented health care plans that deny care that try to pocket money that try to squeeze dollars and cents out of our health instead of that we replace it with um, a publicly financed uh, program across the state where everybody is in one system you know we like to say in the medicare for all and single payer movement everybody in nobody out you know we would end the, the deaths and the healthcare tragedies that occur from our current system because people delay care, they cut back on care just because they can't afford it. You know, one statistic I think is really uh, telling from the California Healthcare Foundation at the end of the 2020, they, they surveyed uh, Californians and they found that half of Californians skipped, delayed, or cut back on care because of costs. That would end under CalCare. The amendment ACA 11, which is the how to pay for it part of the bill, is critical. Not as much for you know those of us who feel that healthcare is a fundamental right and we should pay for it in any way we can, but for those who are the naysayers, um, the conservatives, both Republicans and Democrats, um, who have spoken out against any kind of single payer system will constantly bring up, but how do we pay for it? That argument, of course, never comes up when we're talking about military appropriations, say, at the federal level, or more tax breaks to big corporations, but it always comes up when it comes to things like health care. So what does ACA 11, the uh, accompanying amendment, constitutional amendment to AB 1400, say um, it should be funded? Are we talking about tax hikes on the wealthiest Californians or corp uh, corporations in California? Yeah, so ACLA 11 creates, you know, just a, a starting place for discussion in the legislature, but it really has, you know, it's a progressively uh, structured, broad-based taxation where where uh, the wealthiest would be paying more than your average families. What ACA 11 really shows is that we can have a publicly financed system that is truly um, uh, benefits every single Californian, except perhaps the, the, the most wealthiest, the, the folks who are going to be saving the most by moving to CalCare, by moving to a publicly financed, progressively financed uh, system, would be those who are underinsured right now, those who are paying high premiums and deductibles and cost sharing for their for their health care. Uh, ACA 11, you know, takes that as a starting point. You know, we can make it even more progressive if we really wanted to, you know, and, and CNA and the nurses of the California Nurses Association will be fighting to make sure that we have a truly progressive financing plan for uh, healthcare. And by moving to single payer, what we, we, we would be doing is that we would be saving the system overall in terms of costs and putting that do those dollars, those savings um, into expanding coverage so that everybody in the state gets health care and also that we can expand benefits. You know, we know that we can we can have dental, vision, hearing, um, every single type of, uh, of comprehensive benefit, including access to long-term services and supports, a huge component of, uh, uh, of uh, health care that we know that we're going to have to pay for. That can be paid for. I imagine mental health care as well. And mental health care, mental health care services, you know, we, we built into the program making sure that that mental health care providers are actually paid 
uh, enough so that we can keep them accepting patients. Right now, most mental health care providers are uh, private pay because our systems of insurance don't pay them enough and only those who can pay out of pocket can receive mental health care services. We're asking with this program, as a people of California, we're saying, you know, we want to cover everyone um, and we know that we can pay less and get more. So it, it's a win-win for Californians. It would be truly transformational um, to, to say stop profiting off of our health and put it back into the care of California. So I understand that uh, while CalCare wouldn't eliminate officially or directly private health insurance, it would basically replace it, but private health insurance could always provide supplemental care, right? So if you're super wealthy in California and you want to, I don't know, get uh, elective plastic surgery, you could, you know, regularly, you could potentially buy a separate private health insurance plan to cover that for you, or if you know you're gonna get LASIK eye surgery every few years, et cetera, right? Is that, would that be fair to say? The benefits pack package is, is comprehensive. So what CalCare does, it says that um, health insurance plans, um, they, they can cover supplemental coverage. So things that aren't covered, but, but because uh, uh, CalCare would have comprehensive coverage in terms of benefits, there would only be a, a very small sliver of, of healthcare benefits that would health plans could pay for. And we're ensuring that the wealthy and those who have more money can't create multiple queues in the line. Providers have to be in or out of the system. They can't start playing favorites for the wealthy. So, you know, we're really saying that everybody gets the same standard of care, the single standard of care where no one can jump the line unless there's some sort of benefit that's not covered under CalCare, which there will not be very many, like you said, you know, elective surgeries, cosmetic surgeries, designer glasses, private rooms, those types of things. The health insurers will figure out types of uh, concierge services that, that <laughs> may not be covered under, under CalCare. Now, I understand, of course, that the private hospital industry is likely going to be against us alongside the private health insurance industry. But what about providers themselves, either individual providers or small, um, you know, clinics and, and other, say, nonprofit uh, health care providers. I imagine that this would be a sort of stable um, way for them to ensure that they remain uh, able to keep their costs under control, keep paying their doctors and nurses, and, of course, provide quality care to patients. Absolutely. You know, in, in CalCare, um, similar to the Medicare for All bill in the House right now, we've created a system of funding where really what we're asking hospitals in particular is to say, how much money do you need to pay for all the services that, that your patients need? And for, for hospitals and providers in rural areas and underserved areas, in urban underserved areas who don't get enough money now because they have to cover a lot of people who don't have insurance or have a lot of Medi-Cal patients, um, those hospitals would actually be receiving more money and have the stable funding that they need through our hospital funding process that we have in the bill. The healthcare corporations, you know, they're not going to want to leave rural and underserved areas anymore because, you know, right now they're, the healthcare corporations see rural and underserved communities, black and brown communities as risks to their bottom lines. But that will go away under CalCare but because the system would say, we're going to pay you what you need to cover the care costs uh, of your patients. 
it would also just be a boon for for uh, individual providers, your single doctor practices, your small practices, because we're getting rid of the administrative burden of our uh, current fragmented health insurance system. You know, at one estimate um, from the Healthy California for All Commission is that hospitals, doctors, and providers in California spend $85 billion in a year on administrative costs to health insurance plans. You know, that would be a huge savings to those doctors who who want to have small businesses and, and practice in in areas where, where where they want to connect with their patients. So ultimately what is happening is that, you know, we're saving the time and resources of our doctors, of our nurses, and really allowing them to focus on patient care. Let's talk about Governor Gavin Newsom and just in general, the Democrats in California, in the assembly, whose boots will be required in order to pass this bill. Where does the bill stand right now? If it gets to a floor vote, what are the odds that it will pass the assembly? And if that does happen, what are the odds that Governor Newsom, who faced a recall last year and survived, who campaigned on single-payer health care, will actually sign the bill? You know, we're hopeful at CNA and the nurses and the single-payer movement of CalCare. You know, we've been fighting for decades to get single-payer passed and uh, whether or not we're going to pass the assembly and get Governor Newsom to sign AB 1400 into law if we do get it to his desk is that the power of the single-payer movement you know we have to build that power and tell our assembly members tell our senators and tell Governor Gavin Newsom to keep their promises to how is it looking though in the next week if there's going to be a vote how is it looking in the assembly are you worried that there won't be enough votes in this state where we have a super majority of Democrats and a majority of Californians want single payer. From the Health Committee and the Assembly and the Appropriations Committee, uh, you know, we, we really made a mark and really putting the Democrats who say that they support universal health care and, and, and putting them to the test. And they have, through many, many years of conversations, you know, uh, uh, like, for example, uh, Assemblymember Jim Wood is the chair of the Health Committee. And, you know, maybe two years ago, no one would have believed that he would have given that such a profound speech in the Assembly Health Committee in support of single payer. And, you know, because we really brought that groundswell you're really answering the questions that assembly members have been asking for years. I think we are in a very, very good position. You know, the Democratic Party of California, it's part of their platform. And we really just need to keep them accountable to what they're saying. And, you would, know, we it would now be the right time for California listeners and viewers of this program to contact their assembly members and ensure that they are going to vote in favor of AB 1400 if they think that their state should have a single-payer system. Absolutely. Everybody and also contacting the governor. Yes. I, I, um, everybody should be calling their assembly members right now, asking them to vote in support of AB 1400. The floor vote, is, it, it may happen. Uh, by the end of this week, by the end of January, we will have a floor vote. So it's it, absolutely important that folks call into their assembly members and tell them that they support AB 1400 and care. And also telling Governor Newsom to put his name in, in the fight and tell him to support full-throatedly AB 1400 like he, 
he promised that he would support single payer in his um, when he was running for governor. And last year, many progressives, even though they were not happy with Newsom, held their nose and voted against the recall precisely because they wanted a single-payer healthcare system, right? I mean, he survived that recall in large part because of the desire and need for single-payer, which we know for sure a Republican governor wouldn't have delivered. And it would be incredibly ironic and hypocritical if Newsom got this bill on his desk and didn't sign it. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it would be an incredible disappointment. It would be uh, an understatement. And, you know, we're, you know, we will make sure that it gets to his desk and that he will sign it into law. And, you know, I think, you know, Governor Newsom has, he's made great strides in, in his announcement to say that, you know, he wants to uh, improve our Medi-Cal coverage for undocumented immigrants. And he knows this, that this will not solve the fundamental broken system of health insurance you know we're we're essentially putting more public funds towards a system that is broken thank you so much for joining us today carmen give out a website where people can find out more about the work that you do absolutely so if folks want to learn more about calcare they can go to nationalnursesunited.org slash calcare you know we have a lot of things going on over the next couple of weeks and we hope you all join us in our fight for health care for everyone my guest has been Carmen Comstey, lead regulatory policy specialist in government relations at California Nurses Association. She's also a commissioner on the Healthy California for All Commission. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, which is at risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Two years into the coronavirus pandemic, the United States has had more than 2,600 deaths per million people from COVID-19. That's the fifth worst outcome in the world, worse than most nations, and more than twice the death rate of, say, Albania. Added to that, American billionaires, together with their allied politicians, have obscenely profited from the pandemic, while the rest of us have struggled to get by. Now, journalist John Nichols has clearly identified what he calls coronavirus criminals and pandemic profiteers 
in his new book. John Nichols is a national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, host of the podcast Next Left. He's also a contributing writer for The Progressive and Indies Times and associate editor of The Capital Times. He's the author of numerous books, including Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, and many more. We often have him on to talk about his books. He now joins me to discuss this newest book titled Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Welcome back to the program, John. Sonali, it's an honor to be with you and, uh, and a real pleasure to, to talk about this book uh, as we've talked about so many aspects of it along the way. Right. So here we are two years into the pandemic and, you know, we are essentially now at a status quo where we are told that we have to live with it and we're essentially on our own. But it didn't have to be this way. I mean, two years have passed and hundreds of 800,000 plus Americans have died. The question is, did it have to be this way? Did we have to have the death rate twice that of Albania? Did we have to have so many billionaires get so much richer while so many of us got so much poorer? Absolutely not. In fact, it could have been very, very different. And that's the point of the book. Uh, we write books for a lot of reasons and, and uh, books of recent history are uh, usually, I hope, written with the idea of achieving a reform, a corruption, a correction that might uh, allow us to move toward a better direction. And that was certainly my intent in writing this book. The fact of the matter is that we can clearly identify the places at which our political and our economic elites put their own self-service ahead of the common good, and in so doing, cause dramatically more deaths than needed to occur caused dramatically more of a spread of the disease than needed to occur, and frankly, caused more economic and social devastation than needed to occur. And I'm not the one who says this, uh, and, and we don't have to you know, speculate here. The British Medical Journal, The Lancet, established a commission to look at the disparity in outcomes in the United States as compared to other countries on healthcare in general, but including an examination of COVID. And what they found was that during that first year of COVID, even a little bit less of it, during the period when Donald Trump was in charge, we had 40% more deaths than might reasonably have been expected in a country of our size in, in a circumstance such as we were in. And so if we say that there are 40% more deaths than needed to occur, then we are literally talking about hundreds of thousands of people who died that did not need to die. And we can extend that out through the broader health sector, through the broader economic sector, to recognize that we went through something horrific that did not have to be as horrific as it was. So we can't, of course, lay all the blame at Trump's feet because we've had a, a, a terribly patchwork system of healthcare, of a combination of private and public healthcare, and then basically a whole bunch of people who are simply not insured. Um, that was the status quo. We just have, you know, a federal government that uh, is only able to do so much and then Republican controlled state legislatures that can do more but don't. Um, so on layered on top of that, we had a president like Trump who was already inept, didn't care about anybody but himself, and then didn't have any plan. And when he had a plan, left it up to state governors. I mean, it, it seemed as though it was the perfect storm of 
COVID-19 related, you know, disaster that resulted in mm -hmm. so much mass death. You're right. And um, so Donald Trump was the wrong president at the wrong time in the wrong circumstance. I mean, it's everything, everything aligned in the worst of ways. But we have to ask ourselves, how do we end up as, you know, one of the most powerful countries in the world, as a country that, you know, has historically patted itself on its back for, you know, the system that it's established? How do we end up with the wrong president at the wrong time in the wrong circumstance? Well, the answer is that uh, for a very, very long time in the United States, in fact, really throughout our history, we have allowed economic and political elites to screw up horribly, to get things wrong, either deliberately or through their incompetence and not held them to account. We have had 230 years of lack of accountability on a host of issues, and these are economic, social, and racial justice issues. And eventually that creates impunity on the part of those in power. Uh, those in power do not believe that they will be held to account even if they do wrong, even if they screw up. And so as a result, when they look at a situation, instead of looking at it for how they can do the most good for the most people, how they can actually serve humanity, they look at it and say, well, how can I come out ahead politically? That's what Donald Trump did. He literally lied to the American people so that it, he thought it would help him to get reelected as president. Or they say, how can I make money off this? And that's clearly what the pharmaceutical companies have done that's clearly what uh, a host of billionaires did. And they've come out unbelievably advanced. Our billionaire class is larger and richer than it has ever been. And, large, and that has occurred during a pandemic where we were told we were all supposed to uh, engage in shared sacrifice and where essential workers, working class and poor people were sent into circumstances where many of them died because they were doing the public good. They were trying to serve humanity. But our billionaires, our pharmaceutical CEOs, and a lot of our politicians just sat back, sat back and let it happen. John, you name names in your book. In fact, in every chapter, there is the name of somebody who ought to be held accountable. There's three faces on the cover. I believe it's Jared Kushner. Uh, he has one of those faces where it's hard to tell exactly who he is. Uh, Donald Trump and Jeff Bezos. But then you identify Mark Meadows, you identify Betsy DeVos, Mike Pompeo, uh, Mitch McConnell, Ron Johnson. We are at a time when there is a lot of, you and I are speaking at a, just a few weeks after there's been a lot of buzz around accountability for the January 6th riot um, and the attack on Capitol, on the Capitol building. Uh, but there, Congress seems to have sort of forgotten about, or maybe it's just not getting enough attention, about accountability for crimes related to COVID-19. So let's go through some of these people. Um, aside from Trump, aside from Bezos and, and the, the billionaires, who are some other government figures during the Trump presidency that we should identify? Well, I'll, I'll say right up front that there are Democrats and Republicans. So this is an important thing to understand. I have a chapter on Andrew Cuomo and, and his horrible handling of uh, nursing homes and, and the controversy around nursing homes in New York State, which, which is indefensible. So this is not simply bad Republicans or bad uh, conservatives, but they were in the book, they are disproportionately uh, members of the Trump administration and Republicans in governorships and, and Senate seats. And that's because when the pandemic hit in 2020, overwhelmingly, they were in charge. Remember, 
Republicans had control of the presidency, Republicans had control of the Senate, and in this case, Republicans had control of a lot of key governorships around the country. And you can chart uh, the wrongdoing, the failure, the, the disaster that extended from their approach to governance. Now, the, the disasters, you know, it took different forms. In some cases, there was a, a belligerence, a refusal to accept or respect basic public health uh, standards. That's what you see with Iran DeSantis in uh, uh, Florida, a governor down there, or Governor Nome out in South Dakota. These are people who, you know, for political purposes, literally refused to protect their own citizens. Uh, but then you also see folks in positions of power where they could very easily have done the right thing but refused to do so. The classic example is Elaine Chao, who is Secretary of Education or Secretary of Transportation under Donald Trump. Elaine Chao could very easily have issued a national mask mandate for public transportation. That was something that unions begged her to do because bus drivers were dying, flight attendants were dying, uh, people who worked in subways were dying. And they were saying, you know, look, if we had a mask mandate and some other protections, we could, we could maintain public transportation and yet at the same time uh, keep people at least relatively safe. Elaine Chao refused throughout the entire period of the pandemic until, uh, well, up until Joe Biden came in as president to issue a, a mask mandate. And then you have another example of a person I talk a lot about in the book, Betsy DeVos, who was Secretary of Education. I mean, her crass and, and, and genuinely cruel response to the pandemic was to say, well, um, we're getting all these objections from teachers to reopening schools uh, because they're afraid they're gonna die, right? They're afraid that they're gonna get sick. And from parents who were concerned about how this was gonna be organized, instead of working with teachers unions, which had ideas for how to get schools reopened safely, she went on Tucker Carlson's show and said, well, if they don't wanna do this, maybe we should move the money out of public schools and over to private schools that will reopen and do it the way I want it done. Well, with Betsy DeVos, that's a case of someone who has always had a political goal, that's privatization of education, and who looked at the pandemic and said, oh, here's an opportunity for me to advance my political agenda, even if it is at the expense of the health and safety of teachers, students, and their families. There was also tremendous um, misinformation in the country that has contributed to, continues to contribute to deaths, to, you know, we, we simply can't get enough people vaccinated or respecting uh, requests to wear masks. How much of that can be laid at the feet of those you identify in your book, uh, lot of it. criminals? Yeah, a, a lot of it can be laid at the feet of, of particular politicians. I single out a few of them, uh, Rand Paul, the Senator from Kentucky, Ron Johnson, the Senator from Wisconsin, who literally uh, this week held a hearing in which he had vaccine skeptics uh, talking about, uh, you know, just all sorts of wild theories on, on why vaccines are bad and uh, why either you shouldn't take them or you shouldn't trust them. And, and, and this is a U.S. Senator using his platform, literally using the, the capital of the United States as a platform to advance misinformation. Now, the interesting thing about it, Sonali, is that uh, in, in a circumstance like this, 
you will have always had people who spread misinformation, who spread disinformation. That's always happened throughout history. This is, that's nothing new. But what is new is that you have political leaders in very prominent positions, right up to Donald Trump as president of the United States, who have done so. Uh, Ron Johnson literally doing so with vaccine skepticism again and again and again, highlighting it, pushing it out through social media, pushing it out you know, to the extent that mainstream media will cover him. And it, this creates a sort of, and I put quotes, quote marks around this, a legitimizing uh, impact, right? It creates a circumstance where people say, well, you know, uh, US senators wouldn't be telling me this is bad if it, if it was, wasn't bad, it must be, there must be something to this. And that gets amplified, not just through, you know, right-wing media um, and not just on social media, but too frequently we see uh, even major media, uh, which are doing sort of, you know, both sides of the equation, amplifying, if not direct skepticism, at least a dubiousness about it that, that has a real impact. And we have seen the play out of this. Uh, the numbers are astounding. If you compare the United States to other countries, other countries have far higher levels of vaccination where, they, where it's available to them. And we could be at a much better place if our political leaders and, and frankly, our business leaders, including those in media, were more responsible. So, John, let's talk about how accountability can be had in the absence right now of any sort of major effort to hold those folks uh, that you identify in the book accountable. What do you suggest Congress needs to do? Um, and you have a, a very specific example from history. And this one of the reasons why I always love your book books is you, you have this incredible breadth of history, uh, lifting out parts of history that most of us have never heard of and uh, making them relevant to today. And you write about the PCORA investigation. Who is uh, PCORA and what did he, what investigation did he lead? Oh, that's a great, I love how you set that up. Uh, Ferdinand PCORA was a uh, lawyer from New York City and he made his name going after the mob and going after uh, corrupt bookies and, and uh, you know, all sorts of scandal play players in New York City. And when the Great Depression hit, uh, there were members of the U.S. Senate who wanted to investigate those on Wall Street who had done wrong, the bankers, the speculators. And they decided to bring in a, a lawyer who had prosecuted the mob, who had prosecuted, uh, you know, petty criminals, because they wanted to go after the big bankers, the big speculators, with that same level of intensity, the same level of intensity that you would go after uh, somebody who was setting up a bookie operation that ripped off working class and poor people. And so Ferdinand Percora came in and did by all accounts an amazing job of getting you know, into the details of financial wrongdoing. And with the power of the Senate, he called major bankers, you know, literally heads of you know, investment houses before the Senate and forced them to testify about what they had done. Now, the end result was that people lost jobs, people were prosecuted, people were fined what for those days were immense amounts of money. And most importantly, you created a understanding on the part of the public that the Great Depression was not a natural phenomenon. It wasn't something that just happened because you know the world economic markets did something wrong. No, that there were bad players who had made bad decisions deliberately and who had profited off it and they could be held to account. 
That had an impact on our politics. It also drove change as regards financial regulation. What I argue is that if we adopt that model and we aggressively go after the people who did wrong, name names, force them to testify, investigate them, use all the avenues of accountability, we don't just punish them. And that's not really the point. The point is to drive the change so that we can never get in this circumstance again. John, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the book. My guest has been John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation magazine. We've been discussing his latest book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Cause the Crisis. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy Award-winning band, Get Some. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM.